0: Paul Russell Garrett is a literary translator from Danish and Norwegian with the drama holding a particular interest for him. He has translated a dozen plays and heads the translation mentoring program at Foreign Affairs Theatre Company in London. He has also translated a score of books, most recently Mikael Strung's Punk Poetry Collection, Speed of Life. In 2020, his translation of Christina Hasselhoff's Vivian was long-listed for the Warwick Prize for Women in Translation. Paul is the current chair of DELT, the Association of Danish-English Literary Translators. And is a founding member of the translator collective, the Starling Bureau. In this episode, he spoke about his love for translating drama and experience of translating drama. And about two of the books that he translated, Vivian and uh, Companions. You can purchase Vivian and Companions using the link provided in the show notes. Please share your feedback on this episode either on the Spotify app or through the link provided in the show notes. You can follow Harshniyam Podcast on Spotify, Apple or search any of your favorite podcasting apps. Welcome Paul. Welcome to Harshniyam.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You're from Canada. How did you end up becoming a translator in Danish and Norwegian?
1: Yeah, that's, it's, a long, it's a long or a short story. I guess the short story would be that I was traveling and I fell in love with the Dane. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, and after that, I fell in love with the Danish language. Yeah, uh, I started learning Danish bit by bit. And then I studied it formally at um, University College London. It's like one of the only places where you can study Danish in England. And then I just, as I was studying the language, I started was introduced to the literature of the country as well. And I just I just, uh, was amazed by the the breadth and the beauty of, of the language and the literature. And while I was at university, I also was introduced to uh, other Scandinavian literature. And I studied Old Norse as well. So I really got into the language and literature of Scandinavia. And I later realized that I was able to read the other Scandinavian languages and actually translate from them as well because of that sort of full-on exposure to the different languages. And then I just fell into translation. I never planned to do it. It was never a a goal, but it was actually, I just fell upon this play by Benny Anderson, which is, maybe we can talk about that later, but I just found it and I wanted to translate it because it was just this really funny, uh, really beautiful little story, really hilarious actually. And I was like, yeah, This would be fun to play with, and it went from there. And it just became, all of a sudden, I was doing this for a living.
0: Now, Danish and Norwegian, if you learn one language, is it easy to learn the other two? Are they very close?
1: They're fairly close, at least. Written Danish and Norwegian are very close. Reading Norwegian is actually quite easy for someone who who reads Danish. Speaking or understanding Norwegian is a little bit more difficult. They sound, Danish and Norwegian sound very much different, but on the page, they look very similar.
0: So how different are the Danish and Norwegian when it comes to amenability for translation?
1: I sometimes think that Norwegian is actually a little bit easier for translation. I, I might get into trouble for saying this because my wife might be listening <laughs> there. But yeah, I find Norwegian is sometimes a little bit more outward looking, a little bit more international in scope. And Danish is sometimes a little bit more inward looking, just focused on a little bit more focused on, on, on Denmark and on Danish
0: interests. You mean to say the literature part of it or language part of it?
1: Literature primarily, yeah. Yeah, I would say Danish literature is a little bit more inward and Norwegian is a little bit more outward focused.
0: Your first work of translation, interestingly, happens to be a Danish play.
1: Yeah. Again, this was the 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 book that I mentioned that I accidentally found. It's called The Contract Killer by he's the author Benny Anderson. He's not the Abba Benny Anderson. It's a different Benny Anderson. But he's really famous in Denmark. He's he's a singer. He's a poet. And then when I found this book in the streets of Copenhagen, I just it was like in a book bin outside of a shop, like old and yeah old books, secondhand books. And I saw that it was a play, and I thought, I didn't know he wrote plays. I was this is interesting. I'm gonna try this, and I just. I paid, I don't know, a pound for this book and took it home and started reading it. And just, I was just laughing just out loud and loving the read and enjoying it. And I should also say that my wife runs a micro theatre company in London. So I have a little bit of connection to the theatre world. Not me personally, but my wife is into, involved in theatre.
0: What is a micro theatre?
1: It just means a very small theatre company. It's a fancy word for a very small one.
0: Name of the company?
1: they're called foreign affairs theatre company and it's there's a story behind that as well but they specialize in translated theatres they work primarily with fiction in translation translated into english but they also like exploring languages and involving other languages in their translations if there's i'm thinking of there was a hungarian play that they trans that was translated for them a few years ago and they introduced a hungarian folk song into the play because they wanted to get some of the original flavor if you will into it to make it a bit more get a bit of that office authenticity
0: into it how many plays you translated for her
1: for her i think five or six plays now okay. yeah okay yeah <laughs> that's great. we work a lot together we work a lot together and then i've translated about five or six more plays on that so about a dozen in all
0: i guess you're part of the rehearsals too
1: Yeah, which is not normal, which is not normal in the theatre world. But because obviously we have this relationship, I thought it would be interesting and she thought it would be interesting. And the actors were actually really interested as well because they don't know the author. They have no relationship or connection to the author. They can't speak to them. So this was their chance to ask questions about the text from the person who probably was best able to answer them. So, yeah, that was a real privilege and an honour to be part of that process.
0: How do you feel watching the actors performing the lines you
1: translated? Oh, it's amazing. I really can't describe it. The first time I've been to rehearsals, but the first time one of the plays was produced, I was really nervous beforehand, really nervous. And then once they started, I just completely relaxed and I just enjoyed it so much. And I was able to actually like laughing at the lines that I had translated and crying with them, like feeling all these emotions with them because it was, it had been taken away from me and it was no longer my words. It was the actors that were, they'd embodied it and it was just it's such an experience it's really amazing
0: so was there any improvisation not too much
1: with these so the actors that my wife work with they they most of them they have a very specific sort of style that they work with and she's quite she's she works as a director as well so she's also quite stringent on the words on the page those are the words that you say and you don't miss any of them because that she really is a true believer in the text is what's written there. So there's not a lot of room for them to play around there. She's very tough on them.
0: When you're translating a play, you've also translated scores of novels. How different is the experience?
1: I think what I've discovered, because I'm working with both, is that I love translating dialogue. I love translating, and it comes very natural to me. So if I get novels with a lot of dialogue in them, I, really, I find that really enjoyable and quite quick moving and quite natural. When I'm getting into texts like we're, we're going to talk about today with long winding monologues, it's enjoyable in a different way, but it doesn't come as easily to me. I have to work a lot harder at it and I have to really try and break things down and really figure out what is happening there.
0: So when it comes to Danish literature and translations, uh, are there any organizations uh, promoting this, Danish literature in specific?
1: So the Danish Arts Foundation is the first one that comes to mind. Most of the Nordic countries, most of the and smaller countries as well, they often have a an organization that will support their language and the literature. And they will fund money for the translation, for the publication, both for publishers, for translators, for authors. So Danish Arts Foundation does a lot of work on that. They also, I was just in Copenhagen two or three weeks ago, and that was a trip that the Danish Arts Foundation had organized. So 60 translators who work from Danish into other languages had all been invited, all of them living outside of Denmark, had all been invited to Copenhagen to attend the book fair and to participate in a series of seminars about Danish literature and language. And so they do amazing work. I should also mention, I'm the current chair of, the, of DELT, the Danish English Literary Translators Association. And we do a lot of work promoting Danish literature as well. We're about 60 translators, all working from Danish into English.
0: Oh, there are so many translators, 60 translators. I know.
1: Every time I've, I hear of a new Danish translator working into English, I'm just like, how many are there? And I'm surprised there are so many for a
0: very small language. But yeah. That's really good to know. Really good to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's truly really inspiring, actually.
1: Yeah, it's nice to have, it is really nice to have a, a group of colleagues. And we're generally, I think it's because maybe it's not quite as competitive as some of the other bigger languages like French and Spanish and German, because we all know each other and we work together and we share work and it's a bit more collaborative. We A lot of us co-translate books together. So there's a really, a real camaraderie uh, amongst us, which is great.
0: Now, tell us about your mentors. I was lucky
1: enough to take part in the CW, the National Centre for Writing, the mentor programme back in the early part of my career, when I was first getting started. And Barbara Havilland was my mentor. And she's been translating Danish literature for oh, probably 30, 35 years now. And she was trained by Christopher McLehose, and he's a legend in the publishing and translation industry in the UK. He's worked for a few different publishers who have specialised in translated fiction From around the world. And so I was working with one of the best translators there was. And that was just an incredible experience. Very humbling, very difficult because it taught me how hard this translation business was. I thought I was, I thought I was ready to master it. And she taught me that it was, I was not ready. I I had a lot of work to do. So it was quite humbling in that sense. And then I have now gone on to to mentor people myself because I got such an experience out of it i re, I really felt that I owed it to them to share that experience with other translators, so I've now mentored two two Danish to English translators and they're now going on to publish some to have some amazing literature published
0: themselves so is there any difference in the approach she took and you are taking?
1: I think so, because she had this really stringent training in the publishing industry, because she worked side by this publishing legend. She came at it very much from an editor's point of view. And I think I was probably more in the middle somewhere. So I was always on the side of trying to keep the translators balanced between the original Danish and the target language English. So always making sure they looked back to the target language to make sure they're being true to that and being honest and, and not being too creative but also allowing that creativity to flow in the English as well. So it's a really fine balance and sometimes you have to let them go free and then reel them back in a little bit. But yeah, that's
0: so a slightly different approach I would say. Yeah. Please tell us about the BCLT's workshop for translations. I'm trying to think how you might explain that. This is maybe
1: like a, an intense version of the mentorship really, but instead of just one person, it's for 10 people. I think each workshop has a maximum of 10 participants and Leading the group, in leading the group, is a translator, an experienced translator themselves, and also the author is also in the room. The the author and the translator leader, the workshop leader, will choose one particular book or text by the author, and we will all collaboratively translate that work uh, or pages of it. We don't get that much done. (laughs) So we'll spend a week working on, I don't know, maybe we'll get through five or six pages all trying to produce a final text for this particular text. And it's it opened my eyes a lot to what translation is. It's not just I can translate X into Y. It's not just a like-for-like like translation Or oh, this word means this. Because I was in the room with nine other people who all had different experiences from me, who all had grown up or lived in different countries, who had different backgrounds, and so they would come up with completely different ideas. And I would think, oh, that's a great idea. I never would have, I never would have come up with that. So it made me, it expanded my horizon. and made me start thinking outside the box a little bit and being more open to different possibilities, I think. I participated in the workshop three times myself, actually. Twice for Norwegian translation. And then the third time was something they call training the trainer program. Because they wanted me to go on and lead workshops uh, for Danish in the future. It's a really great idea. It's like passing the baton on to the next person there. Okay, you did this. How would you like to do this for other people now? So BCLT does uh, really great training programs for translators. Yeah.
0: So this BCLT is anyway related to University of East Anglia?
1: yes exactly so with the british center for literary translation it's i think there's some quite famous translators that have worked out of there they have a great literary program there they have a great translation program there they also have a great drama program there it's quite interesting that all those things come together
0: now we will talk about a couple of your novels uh, you translated ukulele jam
1: that has a real soft spot in my heart it was one of the first one of the first novels not the very first But actually, you mentioned my mentor, Barbara, before. She sent me this work. The Danish publisher wanted a sample translation done of this book. So it hadn't yet been sold, and they wanted to pitch it to a few British publishers. Barbara and I worked on that together a little bit. I think it was maybe about 20 pages of the sample that we worked on together, and then a couple of years later, somebody came along and asked if I wanted to translate the whole book. And I thought, wow, this is amazing, because this was really the first novel translation that I'd worked on. And it's by a Danish author, Alan Mescovich. And I've met him loads of times. And he's just, he's a really wonderful writer and a really wonderful person. And this is about a, a young boy, a teenage boy growing up in the war in the former Yugoslavia. So he was a teenager during this. And this is a, a teenager who's basically all he wants to focus on is music and girls that's all he's interested in <laughs> but we so we really focus on this he's got he's listening to all his different mixed cassette tapes and stuff like that and thinking about the girls he'd like to he'd like to go out with but in the background we have the war is happening all around him we can hear the shells we see the effects of it we see the how people different peoples are treated in, in various situations so it's a really it's a really heartwarming story but told in the backdrop of this really horrendous situation there
0: Hugo Chavez uh, biography.
1: That's, a, that's an interesting one. I was asked to do this. I think the way to say this is that I'm a working translator. This is what I do for a living. So sometimes I take work because someone has offered me a good rate to, to translate it. And this is one of those ones. It was enjoyable. I really, I learned a lot about Venezuela and about Hugo Chavez and about the Norwegian journalist that was telling the story. But I think... It wasn't my, my, it's not my most memorable experience, but it was, it pays the bills. And that's as important. That allows me to do some of the other works that that I wouldn't normally be able to do.
0: In the difficult, in the sense, if you may answer, is it because of the way it is written or uh, the philosophy of it? Or?
1: I felt the book was slightly too biased in favor of, of Chavez. It was trying to tell a different side of the story, one that's, uh, uh, that differs from the Western narrative. So it was by a, I would say, a fairly left-leaning Norwegian journalist who wrote this. And he'd spent, I think he'd lived there for about 10 years before he wrote this. So he had a very particular view of it. And it was interesting to get that, to try and find a balanced view of what was happening. But I think it probably, it wasn't as unbiased as I would have liked to be. Saying that, after some of the events that happened towards the end of Chavez's reign, he did write an afterward. He did write a postscript to the book and denounced all of the violence I think he also realized that maybe people might read this being completely pro-Jabbers and it wasn't meant to be that way.
0: So now my favorite, the Vivian Meyer's book on Vivian Meyer. How come a Danish writer wrote about Vivian Meyer?
1: Yeah, that is, that's an excellent question. And I think I've asked the author this and I think she's talked about it a little bit. And I'm trying to remember now, this was maybe about five six seven years ago though now that i translated it but i think she found the documentary she saw the documentary that
0: oh that's a wonderful documentary
1: it really is and that just opened a rabbit hole for her she just She was like, I've never, how come I've never heard of this person? How is this? And it just, it really made her interested in discovering more about it. So she started to do a little bit of research and a little bit of research turned into a lot of research. She showed me her sort of folder of research when I went to visit her in Copenhagen and when I was translating it. And it was quite impressive and so much so that there was things when I was asking her questions about the text and she couldn't remember, she couldn't remember why or how that happened. So we were like digging through the folders to try and find. These were old newspaper clippings, articles, TV shows, lots of things. But
0: there was the, it was the documentary that really started it off. The most inspiring and wonderful thing about Vivian Meyer is that she has a very mundane job. She works as a nanny, right? And in her spare time, she produced some of the world's best street photography. It's wonderful, right?
1: if you and i guess that is what Christina Hesseholt, the author when she was trying to imagine how was she able to capture such stunning photographs and she explores that through her encounters so the the character Vivian through those encounters when she takes these photographs she explores it in her i think through the personality of Vivian the character maybe that says how she was able to capture these she was very blunt she wouldn't ask permission for it. This is at least how she imagined it, that she would just snap people's photographs without asking them in sometimes quite awkward situations (laughs) in quite intimate situations in some cases as
0: well. Tell me about Fitzgerald, the publisher.
1: Jacques Testard is the driving force of Fitzgerald. He founded it and he's one of the main editors. And he just seems to have a knack for finding. I think that's that's what he wanted from the beginning was to find prize winners. He wanted to find... people who are already winning awards, but also people he who he believed would win the major literary awards. So some of them hadn't won literary awards in their native countries before, but he really truly believed that they would. And I think that was the case with Christina as well. Unfortunately, that she was long-listed for a couple of prizes, but it, it didn't happen for Christina. But he's just... He's on a roll with the yeah, Nobel Prize winners and Booker winners and all of these prizes. It's cr- truly incredible, but they're great to work with as well. They're quite translator friendly, if you might say. They offer good terms to translators. They work side by side. They have really great editors. So the editing process is a really positive experience, really helpful experience. And they know what they're doing. They're really clever people in every sort of level of the business, even just like just the just the covers there, people know that. They recognize that. You go around, you, yeah, you're probably walking in India. Yeah.
0: All book covers, they look the same, right? In, in in the deep blue color with white font. But it's unmistakable. So you see someone carrying one of those and
1: you're like, ah, that's a Fitzgerald book. It's very clever to marketing, actually. And even like when they started, people thought it was a bit strange. But even that and just the French flaps which I really love, these that you can use as bookmarks. And it's just a simple but beautiful design. Yeah. And then they don't have to worry about trying to find a clever image as well. So they just have the words there. They don't have to pay for a, an image designer or anything like that.
0: What are the current projects you're working on?
1: To be honest, actually, things are a little bit quiet at the moment. I've got a few projects on the back burner, but I've spoken to a few colleagues as well, and the translation a little bit quiet at the moment. Just, I don't know if this is a delayed effect of the pandemic and the paper shortages and the rising prices of paper and everything like that, if that is maybe a sort of delayed effect, but what it's doing is it's allowing me to work on more plays. So I've got two or three plays that I've been working on in my spare time. So I'm trying to, and there's one that I'm trying to finish off. There's two others that I've finished transiting and I'm trying to promote to, trying to pitch to a couple of theater companies. My wife can't produce them all, unfortunately. And yeah, I'm also doing a lot of teaching. So I teach Danish. So that's another way that I can support myself. But actually, it's, I learn a lot more about the Danish language by teaching it to other people. So it's, I'm still working within language. And I'm able to like have these realizations about things. I'm like, ah, that's why you do this and this. So the next time I translate this, I should do it like this. And
0: yeah. Now, now tell us about the author of Companions, Kristina Hesseholt.
1: She's been working for a few years now. I guess she had her sort of supposed breakthrough in the 90s. She's been working for, yeah, a good 30 years now. But this particular book in in Danish, that was probably her sort of slightly more commercial breakthrough, even though it's not a particularly commercial book, but that was really popular in Denmark. And so she's a very well-established writer and she's very playful. She's been honing her craft for a long time as well. And I think in the last 10 or 15 years, she's been a lot more experimental. And it started with Companions, where she started experimenting a little bit more with style and prose and characters. And then there's a couple of other books that come after this that are even more experimental. And um, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out for them. But yeah, I met her on a few occasions. She came to London for the launch of Companions. And we uh, we did a book launch in a lovely little bookshop in East London. And I also, when I was translating her second book, I went to Copenhagen and I had lots of questions for her because it was part of the research and she's come to Copenhagen, we'll talk about this. We can sit down in a cafe together. We can go through these things. Again, this goes back to Danish Arts Foundation. I also applied for a travel grant from the Danish Arts Foundation, and they were able to support part of my journey to, to travel there and to stay there for three weeks. So we could sit down in the lobby of, in a coffee shop, in the lobby of the hotel for three weeks and just went through the nitty gritty of the text. And she was just, ah, she's so lovely, so warm. She was also very much, she knew that I was the English expert here. So she didn't want to, she's, my English isn't very good. So I'm not going to, you choose this, you get the final say in this because you're the expert in that. She didn't pretend to be better in English than she was, which it can happen but so generous and and so helpful with her time and her suggestions and everything. Really, really just a joy to work
0: with her. When it comes to Companions, the novel, the author says Virginia Woolf's The Waves was the inspiration. How different are these two novels? When I was transiting Companions, I was
1: amazed by all the literary references in the book there. Yeah, exactly. And I was worried as well because I was not as well read as I would have liked to have been in preparation for this book. So I did read some books as I was going through that process, but I was, this was such a monster of a project. I didn't have time to do a lot of other things, but I put on my list of, uh, on my list of to read books was all the mentions in there. And I think I've gotten through about half of them now. So I read the waves after I translated Companions, which was a great book, but it would be difficult for me to say, it would be difficult for me to compare them. But interestingly, yes, she's definitely mentioned. Virginia Woolf is mentioned in there, and one of the characters goes on a literary tour of England and explores these different places. So I learned what I learned about Virginia Woolf was mostly through through Companions. Yeah. Please introduce us to the
0: novel Companions.
1: It's Vivian is a much easier book to describe what it's about. Companions is a lot of people have written about what they think it's about. I could tell you what I think it's about. Christina might say something completely different. I don't know. But it's really about six six companions, six friends who have been friends for quite a long time through most of their life. And they've gone through a lot of different experiences together. Some of them have been very good friends and then fallen out. Some of them have been married. And I, if I remember this correctly, I think one was married to one character and then was involved with a, a, another character. Uh, so it's a kind of an incestuous relationship as well between these characters. But they go on these different... it. it so each sort of section starts uh, with the voice of one of those characters. And it says, and just at the very top of each section, it'll say the different names so you know who you're going into. Sometimes those sections will involve one of the other characters. Sometimes it'll just be that one person. And then there's some really lovely sections where all six voices meet and they're all in the same room at one one play at one time. And then it's like this cacophony of voices all talking over top of each other, competing for space and time. But they go on all these just I guess they're just life experiences, these different adventures, these travels throughout their life. And they're just descriptions of these little moments in time and different things that happen to them in, the, in these moments in time and revealing a little
0: bit about themselves through these different experiences. And interestingly, one of the characters is a writer too. Camila is a writer, yeah. <laughs> and there are a lot of literary references, starting from paragraph one. She starts, I think, with uh, Wordsworth. The first line, even,
1: yeah, the first line is, yeah, so she's not shy of, of getting in her literary references, but that tells you the that tells you the story of a very confident writer to start talking about wordsworth uh, uh, in the first line, yeah, and I think even the the opening quotes, the the dedication I think is almost is also a Sylvia plath quote as well. so I know that i've so I've talked to some other translators who've also worked on this book into different languages, German and Dutch, and so on, and there are a lot of. Some of them have dug deeper into who are these characters? Are these real people? Are they based on real people? Is this the author? I ignore those questions in mind for, because for me, it's a work of fiction and I treat it as a work of fiction. And I don't try and inter, intertwine reality too much into that. It's interesting to hear these stories, but I don't know if they, in some ways, I think they get in the way of the translation. So I I would like to translate it on the reaction that I have to that text And not outside influences that aren't in the text but yeah they're all very although they're not all writers they're very well educated they're literary they're middle class they have a certain background and a certain level of education and that much is clear through all of them isn't it
0: what is very surprising to me about the book is it's like you said it's monologues mostly it is monologues from different characters monologue from different characters Still, the way it is constructed it is very interesting. you don't get bored anywhere it's wonderfully done actually No, you don't because it's it
1: may not be for everyone's taste because I guess it in some places it really dives into the stream of consciousness style of writing where it's literally you start in one place and then the it's the the narrator gets distracted by something and then starts talking about this and then just bounces onto another thing and I have to tell you, translating that was incredibly difficult.
0: Yes, I was about to ask you that. <laughs> I was about to
1: ask you that, yeah. Some of the sections I had to read so many times and just I had to tr- trace that train of thought and see where it was going because all of a sudden, mid paragraph or two pages later, it'll jump back to the original thought that they got distracted from and start on that again. But it's just, it's really cleverly done. It's really well written. And I hope that I managed to keep that train of thought clear for
0: people. You did. And especially there's not much of dialogue going on anywhere.
1: No, but it almost feels, it's almost like an internal dialogue. It's like she's talking to somebody or it's like she is talking directly to you as the reader almost. You feel like you're being addressed in that sense. That keeps your engagement. That keeps you paying attention, I think.
0: Please read a couple of paragraphs from book Companions in both Danish and in English.
1: So I'm going to read a couple of lines from the first paragraph, and then I'm going to jump down to the, to the second paragraph, just to make it go together there. And I'll have to, yeah, I'll see how my Danish does here. I summer, der I wandered around in Wordsworth's <laughs> bakke, barked landskab. landscape, for skyggene på bakken er så mørke og markante, at toppene ser ud, som om de er overhelt med vand, og søerne er så dybe, kom et jagerfly så pludselig til syne, at jeg helt uvilkårligt smed mig ned på maven, slået med rassel. i just jump forward a little bit here. Mens jeg gik omkring i Wordsworth-landskab, Sled mig op af hans stejle bakke, tænkte jeg mig altså jagerflyende som en legimeliggørelse af hans inspiration, den pludselige indsigt, et gudummeligt glimt af erkendelse, in tank som et løneslag og full af bærende af kraft tilstrækligt til at bære et dikt igennem. Det er ikke åb, jeg er sværtvenlig hvis vi for, men jeg kan ikke forestille mig, at William Wordsworth vil være blev for at gøre det. So again, this is from the beginning, and this is Alma reading here, narrating. Last summer, I rambled through Wordsworth's rolling landscape where the shadows on the hills are so dark and so pronounced that the hilltops look like they are drenched in water, and the lakes are so deep that, when suddenly a fighter jet appeared, and without thinking, I threw myself to the ground, terror-stricken. And I'll just go down to the next paragraph. As I walked around in Wordsworth's landscape, dragging myself up his steep hills, I thought of the fighter planes as an embodiment of his inspiration, the sudden insight, a divine flash of realisation, As though like a bolt from the blue and full of load-bearing force, enough to carry a poem through. These are not words I would ordinarily use, but I do not think William Wordsworth would have shied away from them.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the conversation. It's been very interesting. Yeah, it was really nice to talk. I hope we can do it again someday.